Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we're in the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 3, and if it's not the most famous conversation that ever occurred, it's certainly one of the most famous conversations that ever occurred. It happens between Jesus and a powerful, wealthy teacher of the Scriptures in Jerusalem named Nicodemus. And it contains, not only is it a, a famous conversation, but it contains what you guys heard what is undoubtedly the most famous Bible verse of all time, John 3.16. Martin Luther said this about John 3.16. He said, John 3.16 is the heart of the Bible, is the gospel in miniature. You don't see it so much anymore, but that's what I used to see is at at ball games and things, people would hold up, I don't know if it ever did any good or not, but they would hold up the, the placard saying John 3.16 because there, the idea was there. If someone would just look that up, just look that up from those few letters and numbers on a placard, if people would just look that up, they could see the gospel in miniature, the whole contents of the Bible in one sentence. Now, there's a lot of directions that we could go from that one verse alone or the whole passage that we're in. There's so many important truths, so many things that we, in the Christian church, we call doctrines or the, the teachings of the church. But ultimately what we're going to look at this morning, of all the things that we can look at, what we're going to ultimately see is the biggest topic here. Is one topic in all of these verses that we just read that stands out above all the other things, sort of like the sort of like Mount Everest above the Himalayas. There's one topic that stands above everything else, and that is the great love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Because here, here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and what he's saying to you and to me in this passage. If you could get a glimpse of me, if you could get a glimpse of me and my love for you, it would change you forever. In fact, there's enough power in seeing my love for you to heal everything that is wrong with you. But just like Nicodemus, just like Nicodemus, it's easy for you and me to overlook the love of God. 
In order for us to really get a picture of that love, of how great and mighty and powerful the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ is, we have to understand three things before we even get there. We're going to get to his love, but we have to understand three things before we even get there. We have to understand what does the word world mean in this passage? When he says, for God so loved the world, what does that mean? What does that word the world, world mean? And then we need to understand, what, what does that word, world, have to do with Nicodemus? And then, what does that word have to do with us? What does the word, world, mean? What does it have to do with Nicodemus, and what does it have to do with us? Well, first of all, what does that word, the, the phrase, the world, what does that mean? Now, whenever we see that word, the world, used in John, it means one thing. He's not talking about when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, he doesn't mean he loved the planet Earth, though I'm sure he does because he created it. it he's not talking about the planet Earth. He's not talking about a place. Like, so, so if we said, like, so God so loved Africa, or God so loved North America, or God so loved Myrtle Beach or Conway, he's not talking about a place. He's talking about a people and a system. It says, for God so loved the world, he's talking about a people, and he's talking about a system. The world means the nature and system of humanity that is against God. The nature of humanity and the system of humanity that is set against God. It's the natural fallen state that we are all in from Adam and Eve down to today. That's what he means when he says, for God so loved the world. He loved the world system, the people, and the system that is set against God. And here's how to describe it in a few words. It's a system of rebellion. Now, first of all, it means rebellion against God. We are all by nature rebels against God. We want to be our own kings. We want to be our own lords. We want to be our own gods. And if you don't see it in yourself, if you have children, you see it in them. How early, I remember when we had our first daughter, she's here, right in the front row. Man, when we had our first daughter, she is so sweet and beautiful. I remember having this thought, how could she ever do anything wrong? You, you ever hold a baby and think that? How could this sweet little child? And she gets older and she starts to like do cute things and stand up and be like, how could this cute child ever do anything wrong, and before you know it, all of a sudden, they're making you pull your hair out and say bad words. How does that happen? Because by nature, we are all a member of the fallen state and nature of humanity. We are all rebels in our heart. We want to be our own kings, our own lords. We want to be our own God. And what we want by that is I want whatever I want, however I want it, whenever I want it. And honestly, if I'm being 100% true with all of you guys in here, I want all of you to revolve around me and make sure that happens. So most of our life is spent, most of human life is spent trying to get all of you guys to revolve around me. And you're trying to do the same to me and everybody else in this room. We are by nature rebels. We are in a system of rebellion. We're in a system of doubt. Romans tells us that 
You can't look at the sunrise and set. You can't look at the Atlantic Ocean or the beach. You can't look in the the smile of a baby. You can't see the mountains. You can't see the bugs and the animals. You can't see all of that and not understand that there must be a creator, and yet we doubt and we disbelieve. We're rebellious. We are doubters. We want our self-rule. We are people of hate. How does that happen? How do do we live in a world, why is the world that we live in so full of hate? And if you don't believe it, cut somebody at line at Chick-fil-A. Now, I know it's the Christian, you know, restaurant, but you cut somebody in line at Chick-fil-A, I did it once accidentally. Let me tell you, it was not a pretty sight. We are haters, we want self-rule, We are full of doubts and disbelief. We're rebellious and we're angry. Why are we so angry? Why are we so angry? Why do Americans have a reason to be angry? We're part of the richest nation on earth. Even if you're the poorest person in America, you are far above the wealth of the vast number of people on earth now and throughout history. What do we have to be angry about, but yet we are? We're envious, we're full of strife and selfishness. And again, if you don't believe it, go to a preschool, an elementary school, a middle school, a high school, or your workplace tomorrow. And here's who's in this world that he's describing, this world system, everyone. There is no exception. Doesn't matter how good or smart you are, doesn't matter what kind of family you came from, what nation you came from, whether you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church, we are all by nature from Adam and Eve a part of the world system that is full of rebellion and doubt and self-will and self-rule and envy and strife. We are all, with no exception, a part of that world system. And this is how Jesus describes that world system. He says, this is what's happening. He says, you are perishing and you're condemned. That's what he says. John 3, 16, in that beautiful verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, amen, that whoever believes in him, yes, should not perish. Why does he put that in there? Because unless you have eternal life from him, you're perishing. We're rebellious, full of strife, envy, anger, self-rule, doubt, and by nature we are perishing. That's what the world system is doing. That's what you and I are doing. And we stand condemned. Verse 17 through 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, that's awesome. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Awesome. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Just to make it clear, the picture that he's painting, Jesus uses an illustration with Nicodemus that would have been very real and very well known to him and all the Jews of his day. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is referencing a a famous story from when Moses was leading the Israelites in the wilderness, and they got tired of eating manna every day. Now, That's kind of crazy to me a little bit because it's like bread from heaven. 
that appeared every morning. All you had to do is go out of your tent and collect it. But I will say, as much as I love a cheeseburger, a cheeseburger for every meal, for every day, for 10, 20, beyond looking even worse, but for 20, 30 years would get old. And they complained and they murmured against God and against Moses. This is what it says in Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That's the angel bread that fell from heaven every night, by the way. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. It doesn't mean that the, the serpents were fiery. It means their bite was fiery. These adders among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, that's what your situation is like. You, everyone in this world system, has grumbled and complained against God. Everyone has spoken against God. Everyone is full of rebellion, anger, envy, pride. Everyone. I've even sent trouble your way to get your attention. That's the snakes. You are under a curse. You've been bitten. And you need a cure like the one I provided for the Jews in the desert, but greater. That's what he's saying. Now, that leads us to Nicodemus. What does this word world mean or have to do with Nicodemus? See, before you see the love of God and understand it, you have to understand your own deep trouble. That's a great point of what Jesus, why he's using this story with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was well aware of the story. It was a well-known story, and he was a great teacher of the scriptures. But when Nicodemus heard the story, here's what I think. He didn't identify with the Israelites who were among the serpents getting bit. He probably identified with Moses, the one who was right and righteous, the one who's been grumbled against. I'm not one of those rabble, those ingrates, who, those blasphemers, those grumblers. I remember who Nicodemus was. We talked about it last week. He was a wealthy, good, righteous man who knew the scriptures and taught the scriptures. I work harder. I try more. I'm a good man. I'm a religious man. I'm wealthy. I have all the signs. Those were all signs in their culture. Those were all signs that you were somebody who was blessed by God. But Jesus has this to say as soon as Nicodemus opens his mouth, as soon as Nicodemus says, hey, we know that you must be a great teacher sent by God for nobody could do these signs unless God was with him. Jesus says this, unless you are born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying, he's saying this to Nick. Those things can't help you. You're good. You're righteous. You're religious. You're wealthy. 
none of those things help you? It would be like this. This is the situation Nicodemus, Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus. Is what Nicodemus would have heard when he said, unless you are born again from above. It would be like, it's from probably, I can relate to this. It would be like if you walked up to a woman that you're interested in, assuming I was single, and you said, hey, with all the game that I could muster, which was not much, hey, can I get your number? And her reply to me, or to you, would be, unless you become Brad Pitt, you cannot have my number. Or it'd be like me asking Tyson to join the, the worship team, and he says, Randy, unless you wake up one day with an entirely different voice and true musical talent, you cannot join this team. See, there's a woman saying there's no amount of money that you can spend on haircuts. There's no amount that you can have in your bank account. There's no amount of gym time that will give you a chance with me. Tyson's saying there's no amount of practice that can get you up here with a mic. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You have to be an altogether different person or you will not see my kingdom. It doesn't matter how good you are or how religious you are, how much money you've given to the poor, how much time you volunteered, how many times you've been to church. You may even be a pastor. You might lead a community group. It doesn't matter what you have done or what you will do or what you think you bring to the table. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must become a totally different person. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, the position that you're in now, even with all your wealth, even with all your goodness, even with all your religious knowledge, is still the same situation as those Israelites who are the blasphemers and the complainers with the snakes. You are in the exact same position, and unless I be lifted up like that serpent, you will perish. That's what he's saying. That was a hard pill for Nicodemus to swallow. In fact, it appears like he wouldn't even understand it or swallow it until much later when he actually would see Jesus lifted up like that bronze serpent. To see Jesus lifted up to be a curse for him to look upon and live. And what does that have to do with us? What does it from world have to do with you and me? I hope you're already seeing it. You and I are in the same position Nicodemus was. But we don't want to realize it just like him. We are a part of the world. We are in the exact same position as those Hebrews in the camp with the fiery serpents being bitten by the curse of blaspheming and rebelling against God. But like Nicodemus, it can be hard for you and me to stomach. See, that's the dangerous part of the human condition, all of us. Just like someone who is very sick, refuses to look at, uh, look at what part of them is sick because of fear or pride, somebody who refuses to find medical help. We can see the bite, we can be burning up with fever, but refuse to accept the state that we're in. And in that case, you know what we say? We say, oh, that bronze serpent, Jesus, is silly and unnecessary. Or we say, I believe it's real, but I don't have any, I don't have any need for him. Or we acknowledge we need him, 
But we say, you know what? I don't want to just, you said to look at you. I don't want to just look up at you. I want to like come and do a dance around. I want to perform some sort of duty. I want to rub the, rub the cross. I want to rub the serpent. I want to say a prayer. I want to say an incantation. I want to do something instead of exactly what you say to do to approach you in the way that you say to approach you. And here's how you can tell if you get it or not. If you see your need, here's how you can tell if you get it or not. When you hear the story of the serpents in the camp, among the grumblers and complainers against Jesus, against God, what do you think? Do you think, man, God, if I was honest, I would say God overreacted a bit there. They were just complaining about the food. Why would he release serpents to bite them so they would die? Or maybe you think, God was a little bit too harsh there. Or maybe you think, you know what? They had it coming. I would have done the same thing with those ingrates. Don't you see? You're in the same place as Nicodemus and those Israelites. The same place as every human being since Adam and Eve. Unless you realize that you must be born again, unless you realize you must be remade from above, unless you see that you deserve whatever fiery bite of death that the Lord would send your way, unless you agree with him, well, you'll never understand his love. You'll never cherish it, and you won't seek it. Not really. You might kind of wish for it, I wish I could understand his love. Sort of like an addict wishes that he were so sober just for to take another hit. Has the Lord sent trouble to you? Has he sent a little T trouble to you to try to get your attention for the big T trouble? See, the, the serpents were a small T trouble that the Lord sent to the Israelites to see their true danger of their soul in rebelling against the one and only true, good, almighty, holy God. Has God sent those kind of little T troubles into your life to get your attention to the big T trouble that, is your, that your soul is in rebellion against the one and only true God? Are you resisting him? Now maybe we can start to understand what it means when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Have you spent your life looking for true, lasting love? Have you spent your life looking for true and lasting love? Here is love. For God so loved the world, that world, this world, me in this world that he sent his only son, that he gave his only son. And that love is shown in the object of that love and the gift of that love. The object of the love is that God would love that world, that we were just describing. That rebellious, ungrateful, self-seeking, hate-filled, envious, strife-filled love, a world, that world, that system, that God would love that world is miraculous. 
That God would love that world is crazy, miraculous. Look at what it says. You know what it says when it says, for God so loved the world? You know who that speaks about? It doesn't speak about you and me and our loveliness. It speaks about the amazing lover who would love in spite of that envy and pride and rebellion. It speaks of the greatness of the lover, not the loved. For God so loved that world, you and me, caught in that system, caught in that darkness, but yet willingly caught there, speaks to his greatness, not our greatness. How great is the love of God? That he would love the world, that he would love those of us in the world who are trapped and enslaved, but willingly trapped and enslaved, caught in darkness, but burrowing even down deeper in our own darkness. And he loves us. He loves you. You. You think you know. You know right now, sitting around, no matter how well the person next to you knows you, you know I am even worse than they know that I am. If they knew the thoughts that I had, if they knew the things that I've done and I haven't told anybody, you know just how bad, unless you think you know just how bad you are, and yet you're even worse than that. But yet God loves you, and he loves me. It's a miracle of miracles. He, God, so loves us. Do you see how praiseworthy he is for that love? The object of that love, you and me, makes it all the greater. He doesn't love me because I'm worthy and I bring something to the table that he needs to get back in return. He simply loves me in self-giving, selfless love shown to me. His love is greater and the love is exceedingly worthy of worship and devotion and yes, love back in return to him. The greatness of God's love is shown in the object of that love and it's shown in the gift that he gives. For God, notice that word, so. That word, that's a word of measurement. This is, he says this, he says, you want to know how much God loved the world? He loved it so much that he gave, what did he give? His son. This shows the depth of his love towards us. He so loved that he gave and he gave the most precious thing in all of eternity. He gave the most precious thing in all of eternity. The most precious thing to himself. He gave his only son, his eternally begotten, most loved son. He gave. And look at how Jesus, the Son, viewed his incarnation. As he's sitting with Nicodemus, telling him why he came, he says, he's really saying, this is my mission. I came to be lifted up like that serpent. That's what I came for. I came to be cursed. You know what he's saying? 
Picture yourself sitting there across from him, look him looking in your eyes like he did with Nicodemus. And he said, I came to be cursed for you. For cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. I came to be cursed for you, and you know why I did it? I came for love. I wasn't motivated by necessity. He wasn't motivated by any sort of uh, anything that anybody held over him. He came motivated by love. The son was given by the father an incredible sacrifice. But because of the mystery of the Trinity, also the son was giving himself as he's looking in Nicodemus' eyes, as he's standing here talking to you, and he tells us why. For something from us, for something from Nicodemus? No, for love alone I came. Selfless, self-giving, sacrificing love. That's why I came. So why is this eternal life that he's offering available to you? Why is it available to you and me who have spoken against the Lord, who have rebelled against him, who are full of pride and strife and envy? Only because of his great love. That's why. And do you see? Do you see how that's the truth that can change you? That's the truth that can change your heart, that can break your heart. That, that's the truth that can rescue you from a life of darkness. That's a, that, that is the truth, that is the kind of truth that can change your soul because it's that kind of love. When we see Jesus, when we see his coming, his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection written across from Christmas to Good Friday to Easter is the message, here is love. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved even me, even you, that he gave. It's incredible love. Here is love. Then he says, here's what love brings you. That you won't perish. You won't be condemned. I'll take the curse for you. I will perish for you. I will be condemned for you so that you don't have to be. All right, that sounds pretty good, but what do I have to give you in return? What do I got to bring to the table? All right, that's a good deal. Let's, let me hear what you want in return. Wait, but before we talk about that, let me talk about even more. Not only will you not perish, not only will you not be condemned, but I'm going to throw in eternal life to you. Now, that would be a subject of its own. That would be worth multiple sermons to talk about what eternal life is, and we're going to talk about it more in the weeks to come. But just a quick overview. This is what he means when he says eternal life. He says, you as a human being will not live limited, fleshly, perishing, condemned life. For every human being apart from that, it's like the sword of Damocles is hanging over our head by a string waiting, ready to fall. But for the believer in Christ, he says, no more sword hanging over you of perishing and condemnation. I will take that away. Eternal life. You will not perish or be condemned. Not only that, but I'm going to give you an eternal or divine quality of life. 
I'm going to implant in your soul the Holy Spirit of God to reunite you to God the Father who you've been separated from, to change you at the very core of your being, and to give you life where there once was death, to give you light where there once was darkness, to give you peace with God where there once was warring against him and rebellion. I will give you any eternal, divine quality of life that even now you will experience a life in your soul, my, my life within you. And not only that, you will receive an eternal, divine quantity of life. Your life will never end. Not, just, it, not only will it just keep going, will you live forever? I'm going to be honest with you. As good as my life may be at times, I don't know that I'd want to live that life forever. But he says, I'm going to give you that life forever. I'm going to give you an eternal quality of life with me forever. You will forever be supping at my table. I will forever be making a banquet table before you in the presence of your enemy. Your cup will run over. You will be with me and I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. My seed of imperishable seed will be within you. My joy and love and hope and peace will be in you forever and ever and ever. And this kind of life can only come as a gift because you can't make yourself live. That's the, that's the kicker. Hey, what do I have to do in return? It can only be a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't get there. It can only be given as a gift. And it comes, that gift comes to those, all right, what's the payoff, Jesus? To those who believe in him. That's it. Believe in him. That's the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. It's all we have to do. But what does that mean to believe in him? Well, thankfully, he gives us an illustration here. What did, in the picture of the story, that, with the story of the serpent, what did they do to be cured? What did the Israelites do to be cured? They simply looked upon the bronze serpent on the pole. That's it. They didn't have to dance or chant around it. They didn't have to pray a certain prayer. They didn't have to rub it or climb towards it. What did they do? They just looked. That's it. But let's think about what did it take for them to get there? What did it take for them to get there to look? In order for them to get there to, to look at that serpent that had been raised for their cure, then raised for their healing, they had to agree. This is what led up to that look. They had to agree with God about their condition. Remember they, said, they went to Moses and they said, Moses, we have sinned against God. Please help us. They confessed their guilt. They repented from their ways. God, we want to turn away from complaining about you. And they had to accept the foolishness of the cure. Let's be honest. We don't know why God said, hey, these serpents, these snakes are biting them. Take, make a bronze creation that looks like that and put it up on a pole. And if they just look at it, they'll be cured and healed. That's kind of a, a foolish cure, isn't it? You have to humble yourself to take that kind of foolish cure, don't you? 
They accepted the foolish as the cure, and they trusted that God would do what he said. If you look, you'll be healed. Now, how does that connect to Jesus? Do you agree with God about your condition? Do you confess your guilt before him? Do you want to repent or turn from your own ways? Do you accept the foolishness of the cross? Paul said the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Seems a silly thing that all I have to do is believe that Jesus died for my sins and I'll be saved. Do you trust that God would grant eternal life just from a look, just from a believing? There's a lot in that look, but it's only a look. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, just to look at him, just to say, I'm cursed, I'm dying, there's only one cure, and it's freely offered by you, freely given. I may not understand it all, but I'm turning my eyes from myself, from my fears and my doubts. I'm looking away from my own strivings, from my own attempt at self-help, and I'm looking to the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for me, for me as my only cure. Do you see him there? Do you see him there for you? Not for those people out there, not for somebody else, but for you. Do you see him there for you, raised for you? Look to him. Look to him who is full of love for you. Look to him who is becoming a curse for you to receive blessing. Look upon him who took on death so that you might live. Here is love. Here is the love that you've been looking for. Here is love. Here is the Son of God on a mission to save you, to bring you eternal life, and not driven by necessity, not driven by obligation, not driven by any sort of quid pro quo, but, he, but who, nothing that he would get out of it, nothing that, he, that we had that he needed, just driven by love, so much so that he considered it a joy to be set before him on the other side of hell and death and the grave. Why would you not look to him? Why would you not look to him? Not tomorrow, today. Not an hour from now. Not when I consider it. Not when I get myself better. Not when I figure out this whole thing. No, all you need to know is he was risen for you. He was lifted up for you and risen for you. He died for you and is risen for you. That's all that you need to know and all you need to look to. Why would you wait another moment, another day, another hour? To no more be condemned, to no more be perishing, but have a new birth from above, eternal life yours, even now, and swimming in an ocean of endless, unconditional love. And you, believer, I'm going to wrap it up in a minute, but hold on a second. You, believer, perhaps you've been struggling. Perhaps it seems that sin has taken over your life. Maybe the cares of this world have been choking out the reality of your eternal life. Perhaps God's great love for you has seemed less real than it used to. Has despair about your family, your marriage, money, career, friends, your future, have they darkened your mind? Has it seemed like depression has wrapped around you like a constrictor and you're in your last gasp before it takes you into darkness? Maybe doubt plagues your mind. Maybe you're wondering if any of this is actually real. You're afraid you've picked the wrong team. 
You've missed out on many of the better things in life because of your religion, and you daydream about what it would look like if you just stepped away. Believer, maybe you've been struggling. And here I am preaching the most elementary doctrine from the most elementary of verses. I say, okay, I get it. This is a salvation sermon. You made that decision a while ago. This is a salvation sermon or an evangelistic sermon. It's for somebody else, but it's not for me this week. And yet, as I've been preaching, have you felt your heart stirred within you? Haven't you felt his love stirring in your soul? Think about the story of the snakes and the bronze serpent. Moses didn't raise the serpent and all the snakes rushed away, nor did his presence in the camp automatically heal everybody who had been bitten. Perhaps people would, people would still be bitten. They would still taste of the curse. But all they had to do was to look to the bronze serpent and be lifted up. They might have to leave their tent. They might have to move away from where they were. But all they had to do was look and be healed. Even if it was the 15th time a snake had bitten them, all they had to do was just look and be healed. Son or daughter of the king, there's no growing past this. It isn't just the most elementary of doctrines. It's the cornerstone. It's the keystone of eternal life. Look to Jesus. Move away from what's blocking him from your sight. Confess what you must. Repent of what you must. But just look to him. Don't try to clean yourself up or fix yourself. Simply look to him. Are you unsure if you even can repent? This is the 15th million time, Randy. Just look to him and see if he gives you the strength to do it. Don't let death just take you. Don't try to heal yourself. Just look to your dead and risen Lord. It's, the only, it's, it's only that looking away to him, that believing him that brings life and growth and power and victory even to the life of the believer. They're only found in him. But you know what? He is yours. For God so loved the world, hear this, that he gave his only son. That whoever believes simply looks to him should not perish but have eternal life. Here is love. Receive him today. Whether for the first time or the 1500th time, receive him. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up. If you're here today, you feel a tug on your heart. I need. I need this new life. Don't worry about what people around you think. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about anything, but simply look to him. You don't have to come to me. You don't have to somebody, have somebody say a magic prayer with you. But if you'd like somebody to pray with you, I would be more than happy to pray with you. Come forward today. And if you're a believer in Christ, as we open up, communion for those of you who are professing Christians. They'll be the freely offered bread and juice, the body and the blood of Christ offered to you. You can come and say, this is my way of looking to you. You'll be everything for me. Because I believe that you gave your son that I might live forever and ever and ever. Father, we thank you
for the miraculous, crazy, overwhelming love towards us through Christ. You loved us so much that you gave. You gave him. Christ, thank you for that gift. Holy Spirit, make that real to us today. Make the love of God through Christ real to us that we might taste and see that he is good and that we might freshly share that love with those around us who are perishing and condemned. For the name of Christ, for his glory and for our joy we pray.